wonderful. All right, everybody. Good to see everybody. Why don't we, uh, why don't we pray one more time, ask the Lord to bless our study, and we shall begin, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your grace today. Thank you for the mercy that you give us through Jesus. Thank you, Father, that the oath uh, that we sang about is sure and, and concrete, and, um, and that it is uh, unbreakable and sure. And thank you that we are able to understand and to know uh, what is involved in the covenant faithfulness of our God. And so help us now, Lord, to discern what your word is teaching us and just how we can better understand the uh, covenant of redemption in the light of all your, of what you teach us covenantally in the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, today, I don't know if I'm too loud out there. Sounds. I don't think I've ever heard myself that loud out there, so I just don't want to be annoying to people probably annoying enough i don't need to be extra you know the gospel is already an offense i need to but today uh we are going to be looking at um the doctrine of the trinity um in the covenant of redemption and that's what we've been really studying about the covenant of redemption and i think last week i took the marker home that's probably why i'm in trouble up here that one works. Let me do this in all in black. It's going to drive me crazy. So really what we're looking at is Trinitarian implications of the covenant redemption. You see that in your notes? Um, if you have your notes or if you've been bringing your notes or filling that out, that's kind of one of the last sections of the notes. And so what we're asking is what is what is the role that each member of the Trinity plays in the covenant of redemption? And just to refresh our memories, what we're saying is that the covenant of redemption is the very first covenant um, that, that Scripture alludes to or teaches us, um, and that that covenant is an inner Trinitarian covenant. That's not a covenant that was made between man and God or men and men. Uh, this is a covenant that is exclusively made and ratified between the members of the Trinity. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and in church history there is a little bit of debate as to whether or not the Spirit is actually formally a party of that covenant. I think it is. Uh, so I kind of side with those that, that do. I, I think maybe today, hopefully that'll come out a little bit. But remember, this is a covenant that deals with the concept of redemption, and so what we're saying is that at some point in eternity, which that's difficult even to say and to grasp, but in the eternal realm, um, the Godhead at some point made a commitment that they were going to redeem uh, a people for God's own possession. Now, let me, let me just kind of go from a different angle here for a second. Um, when we think about the sovereignty of God, and we think about the doctrine, let's say, of election, of predestination, or something like that. And as you become exposed to Reformed theology, and in particular, Calvinism, uh, typically what's going on in the way that you're studying the sovereignty of God is that you're looking in the Bible for proof texts. And so you're looking in the Bible for places where it talks about election, or predestination, or something like that. But typically, you never think of it primarily from the covenantal angle. 
right? And so what covenant theology does to me is it really helps me to understand what is the, you know, what is the, I don't want to say the logic, but what is the rationale, and I guess, behind the predestining work of God? Is it just that? Because God is sovereign, he elects some and he predestines some and all of that. Or does it, does it have a deeper, uh, does it have a deeper basis? And what I'm saying is that covenant theology and the covenant of redemption helps us to see that, in fact, uh, the doctrine of election and predestination does have a deeper foundation than simply that God is sovereign. Uh, it is because God has made a sovereign commitment uh, in the context of the covenant of redemption. Uh, predestination and election begins with God first, and it begins with what God has committed to do among the members of the Godhead. And so if God the Father, let's start there, right? If God the Father has determined to give his Son an eternal kingdom, well then guess what? As part of that eternal kingdom will come the concept of election. Because what is a kingdom without kingdom people? So God is going to assign to the Son as his reward a people for his own possession. I mean, didn't we just read that in Psalm chapter 2? Right? Ask of me, and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance, right? Or, and, and the peoples to the ends, of, the ends of the earth as your possession. Well, of course, because Psalm chapter 2 is reflecting, uh, and that is a really key passage, is reflecting the whole concept of the covenant of redemption, that the Father somehow, prior to the incarnation, the Father is committing to give to the Son a kingdom and to give to the Son the nations. Uh, that's amazing uh, to think about. And so it just sort of gives a deeper theological perspective to the whole subject of Calvinism. Um, because usually, like I said, I mean, you become a Calvinist, you usually start debating with everybody, and you're debating mainly like texts. You know, it says right here, you know, Calvin, uh, you know, election, you know, how can you not see it? You know, all of this. But really the deeper issue is that this whole concept of of the sovereignty of God really flows from God's uh, covenantal uh, faithfulness to himself to, uh, in, the, in the context of the members of the Trinity. And so this is, this is what's going on here. And so what I wanted to do is I just wanted to consider each member of the Godhead. And so as Father, uh, because remember... What we're saying is that these are, in a sense, the parties of the covenant. These are the, these are the parties that are participating in the pactum salutis, the, the, the Latin word for covenant of redemption or covenant of salvation. Um, and so these are the parties involved, Father, Son, and Spirit. What does the Father do in the context of the covenant of redemption? What is his part in the covenant of redemption? Um, well, some would say that the Father is the one who, and I know this is difficult, but this is the way theologians uh, talk about it. He is the one who conceives uh, of the covenant. He is the one who initiates the covenant, right? He is, in a sense, the primary mover of the covenant of redemption. It does not make him any more God or anything like that, but it just reminds me that God is a God of order, and so it makes sense that the Father be the one to set the covenant of redemption in motion, to, to, to get it going and to, and to commit to doing certain things within that covenant. For example, one of the things that he covenants to do is to what? Uh, to give his son. Turn to John 
right? Everybody should know where that verse is at. Everybody should know that verse by heart, by memory. If Raider fans can memorize the verse, we better know that verse, right? Somebody read that verse for us. Who's there? You there? Anybody there? Cite it from memory. Go ahead. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, think, see, what's going on in the covenant of redemption and really in covenant theology is that it's a lot of very familiar texts. And then those texts are now taken from a covenantal perspective, and in one sense, it really helps you to see the depth of that text. It really helps you to see that that, that text right there is written not just to be part of a Bible promise book, right? But that that and, and it's not just written just to be an evangelistic verse, right? It is written first and foremost because it stems from the commitment of the Father to give the Son as part of his role in the covenant of redemption. He has committed to sacrificing his son. So think about that, the commitment that the father had to make that he will go through with it. And so as the father sees the son in time and space in the garden of Gethsemane, as he's there pleading with, with his father saying, Lord, if, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. But then what does he say? But yet not my will, but your will be done. And what was his will? His will was that he had this grand plan in mind. And it was not just that the sun should die and rise again. That's not the plan. That's part of the plan. The plan is much greater than that. The plan is that the father would give the son for the purpose of redemption. And that through redemption, God would establish an everlasting kingdom that he would grant to the Son. See, this all starting to kind of make sense, right? Why the members of the Trinity are being seen to say the things that they say and to do the things that they do. Um, Any questions, comments, insights, anything? It's supposed to be a Sunday school class, not a preaching session, but... To me, it's just marvelous, right, when you see this. Um, I'm supposed to read some of my notes. I told myself, you better read your notes today. Uh, Because I wrote down here, the giving of the Son is clearly set forth in the Gospels as God's giving his only Son. In the Incarnation, he is Emmanuel. The parables that Jesus taught often depict the giving of the Son for the purpose of sacrifice, as he talks about how he sent prophets and he sent all these messengers, but then he gave his son to be killed, right? All of those things are the things that he covenanted to do, that he promised to give. And you see the giving of the son. Uh, where do you see the, 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 the imagery of the giving of the son by the father in the Bible? Let's talk about the Old Testament. Anyone? Anyone? Isaiah. Okay. Um, if you got a verse, then maybe we'll let you in. But if you just want to shout out a, you know, a possibility, <laughs> then that means I have to go fishing for it. So if you have a verse, read it for us or, or let us know. Yes, sir. Uh, maybe typified in Genesis 22 with Okay, that's right. So first you find the giving of the son almost right at a typological level, right, where you see that God is uh, setting up this situation where, in, you know, that, 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 that God is, you know, chosen Abraham 
right, as his covenant head to represent his humanity and all of that. And he call, he calls Abraham to do something spectacular, uh, almost in, in biblical parlance, almost taboo because human sacrifice is not permitted, right, is not even in keeping with the law, you know. So what is God doing there by asking Abraham to sacrifice his only son? So obviously God is meaning to give us a picture of something deep and profound and of course, right, that, that passage with, with Abraham and Isaac, God is saying things like, or Abraham is speaking and saying things like, God will provide his own sacrifice, or he will provide his own lamb, right? He will provide himself a lamb. And then it says there is a, you know, there is a, a, a ram caught in the thicket, right? And Jesus was the, was the one who was ultimately caught in the thicket, but unlike that ram, he was not released, he was not let go. He was the greater sacrifice. You know, all, all kinds of things like that. People pointed out Isaiah. Isaiah is another wonderful uh, place where God sends his messenger. Uh, here, uh, go to Isaiah 42. This is kind of a very, very foundational text. But Isaiah 42 really begins, um, I think Isaiah 40 really begins the uh, servant theology culminating in Isaiah 53. But in Isaiah 42, we have this amazing statement. And he says in verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, isn't that amazing? Here is an individual, my servant, and it says, whom I uphold. So God is the one who is strengthening uh, this person. And then he calls him my chosen. So in a sense, it's almost as if the servant is the prototypical elect, right? He's the prototypical chosen one. Uh, he is the one, as Peter goes on to say, he is the one who has been foreknown before the foundation of the world. You know, he is the prototypical elect chosen one. Right, And this language is very reminiscent of what God did with Israel. He chose Israel. right? He upheld Israel. All of these things. He delighted in Israel. right? But now there is definitely some sort of double entendre going on. There's, uh, there, there is sort of a redemptive historical meaning going on here. Because the Jewish people initially saw these statements. And many of the applications of these texts were applying to the nation. But, but, but there was something in these texts that applied to someone else. You see, and of course, we know by now, especially with New Testament references, this is ultimately fulfilled by the Messiah, right? Not by the Jewish people. Matter of fact, you know, after Jesus in the first century, um, Isaiah 53, this is kind of common knowledge, that the rabbinical traditions in Isaiah 53 were all messianic. And after that, many of the midrash, many of the rabbinical teachings began to reject a messianic interpretation of Isaiah 53 because it fit Jesus' life so well that they can't possibly be referring to a person. So they interpreted it in terms of the nation of Israel. Um, he not only gives the son, right? So he gives his son for sacrifice. And you could just, there's passage after passage after passage after passage that really refers uh, to all of this. And I have Genesis 22. Um, I have also the Levitical system. You can see if you talk about typology, the giving of the son to be a sacrifice, this is all over, right, the, the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Um, 
just all kinds of, and then the servant of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 53 in Isaiah is all about that. But now let's get on to another subject, which is kind of the same, but not only giving the son, but watch this, sending the son, right? Sending the son. And you see this language in Jesus kind of everywhere, right? That he testifies that the father sent him, right? Or that he was sent by the Father to do X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, in Galatians 4.4, we're told that at the proper time, God sent forth his Son. Uh, he was God's emissary. He was the one who would come and fulfill all righteousness. All of these different things. So he sends his Son for the purpose of establishing his kingdom, the kingdom that was that was uh, uh, covenanted to him. Turn with me to um, Luke chapter 22. I just want to refresh our memory about this verse. To me, I, I don't know if you guys bear witness with this, but to me, it has really, really helped me to understand that, in a sense, the big picture, right? The big picture of it all Uh, in terms of you know what is the bible about the bible is about the kingdom okay it's about the kingdom of god how do you know that because that's how the bible ends it ends with God in the new heavens and a new earth with a people ruling and reigning, Jesus, the Father, on the throne. The Spirit and the Bride say come, and it's this eternal kingdom, right? Well, that is the fulfillment. We just kind of fast-forwarded to the end of the movie, right? And we saw how the story ends. Well, now that you know how the story ends, that's going to help you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and to begin to read the story the right way, understanding that everything is heading to the kingdom right and so you have initial installments of the kingdom you have primitive promises of the kingdom i believe genesis 1 through 3 you have the kingdom displayed in the gospel of paradise you see the kingdom being promised being typified being sort of established on earth as a mirror image of how it is in heaven um uh, you have the kingdom being promised to abraham God told Abraham, from you will proceed kings, right? All of these things. You have the kingdom also being promised um, to the children of Israel in the Exodus. You will be a kingdom of priests to me, God says. And of course, where do you see the kingdom typified the most? If we're thinking Old Testament. Where do we see the kingdom typified the most? Well, the tabernacle is part of it, huh? Yeah, like David. David. Because David is who? He's the king, right? So with David comes a fuller manifestation of the kingdom. I mean, think about it. God tells them in Exodus 19, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. And then where does he send them? Out into the desert to go wander around in tents. Is that a kingdom? (laughs) Doesn't look like a kingdom. Right? It doesn't look very glorious. But when you have God sovereignly choosing and selecting a king and then saying he will build my house 
And then Solomon erects this massive temple, 10 stories high, right? Glorious and beaming and shining forth. And if you guys go to Israel with me, I will show you the white limestone that is still there that at night they would light it up with torches and it would glow in the night. This glorious 10-foot white temple just beaming out of Jerusalem, right? Now that's a typical kingdom image right there. That is the kingdom being typified. And so what I'm saying is that once you understand that the end goal is the kingdom and that that kingdom was promised to the Son by the Father, and that's why the Father gave the Son, that's why he sent the Son, and therefore that leads us to the reward, right? Talking about Isaiah, turn to Isaiah. No, did I tell you to go to Luke? Okay, sorry. Okay, I almost lost that. You guys keep me accountable if I do that. Say, you never never handled Luke. That would help me, okay? Uh, Luke 22, I've shown you this before, but this is Jesus just kind of giving us an insight into what's going on. Verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. Watch this now. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you a kingdom, is what he's saying. So just like the Father granted me a kingdom, when did he do that? When did he do that? See? He can't be talking about his incarnation because the kingdom was already being spoken about before that. Right? And, and, and then even, even, even the Old Testament, he can't be talking about just in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, God is already speaking about his son and his kingdom coming. So it's already a preconceived idea before time. And so God has covenanted a kingdom to the Son in the covenant of redemption in eternity. And here, the disciples are getting a tiny little manifestation of that. And isn't it amazing, the context in which this is spoken is covenantal, because it is in terms of the covenant, the Last Supper, right? Right after he just got done saying, this is, my, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he starts talking about the end-time supernal kingdom, meaning the kingdom of the heavenly realms. And he says that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, before we get too controversial there, what's, what are the 12 tribes of Israel? Are we really going to return back to Genesis you know, 48, 49, and the 12 tribes, and are we going to, is this really speaking about the 12 tribes that is through DNA? Or is this speaking of the 12 tribes probably on the, along the lines of what James mentions, the 12 tribes, which is really, 12 tribes really has become code for believers now. Just like uh, children of Abraham has become code for those who have faith and are justified. Those are, according to Paul, the children of Abraham. So I think I just gave you my interpretation. But anyway, (laughs) so the rewarding of the son is set forth in many, many, many different places. We've talked about Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 through 9. We talk, well, let me read to you Isaiah 53, because this is one that we talk about a lot. Isaiah 53, verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, to put him to grief. So there we have the, here, there we have the, the suffering of the son, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And so here we have some sort of glory after death. 
And so he says, and as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant. That goes all the way to chapter 42 that we looked at. My servant, his servant. This is the servant. He will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot to him a portion with the great and I will divide the booty with the strong or he will because he has poured himself out to death and was numbered among the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Just an amazing. How do you skip over that verse, right? I mean, here you have, here you have the whole person of Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king. He's the priest. He intercedes, right? He is the, he's also the king. He is the righteous one uh, being granted this great kingdom reward. Okay, let's go to the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. And then we will, ah, boy. Yeah, we'll have to skip a lot of this, unfortunately. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, you know this passage. I mean, this is so clear that God rewards his son on the basis of his sacrifice, right? And it says that, beginning in verse 9, for this reason, well, what is that reason? Verse 8 being obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. For that reason, it says, he, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name of, which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there is the Father rewarding the Son with exaltation after his death. Um, any questions about the Father and His role in redemption? It's just so. There's so much there. Yes, sir. Yeah. Verses that we almost hit on is in Isaiah 42, specifically talking to the giving of the Son, where it says, "I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light of the nation." That's right. That's right. That aspect of giving and specifically tying in the covenant. Perfect. That's exactly right. He gives him as a covenant, right? He himself will be a covenant. I think that's definitely alluding to the new covenant, you know? How is that, how is that understood? Well, in his blood. I mean, it's his very blood. So, um, okay, so let's, let's quickly talk about the role of the son. So we've looked briefly at the father, Right, and now let's move because I'm going to need the board probably, so I'll just do this. But now, what is the what is the role of the son in redemption? Well, it is to be a sacrifice. Uh, it is to be uh, the one who is the mediator of the covenant people of God. He is the mediator. He's the redeemer. He's also the deliverer of God's people. He is the prophet, priest, and king, as I have mentioned already. Um, and you see so much of this. Um, I did a whole thing on the prophet, priest, and king, the kingship of Christ, and how that helps us to understand the son's role um, in the uh, in the covenant of redemption, everything that he's supposed to do. Uh, because as prophet, he comes in the spirit of God's wisdom, God's grace, all that is said of him. As prophet, he is, listen to this, he came with God's word as the word, bearing all authority and judgment. His mission was a mission of self-disclosure, whereby he is made known to us as, as the long-awaited Messiah, Lord, Son. 
He comes from the Father and explains the Father to us. That's John 1.18. His identity as prophet is also to be the revealer of the covenant. He comes to explain the covenant to us. I think of a verse like, uh, like Psalm 25. I think it's verse 11 where it talks about the Lord, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear God. He reveals to them his covenant. And, uh, and certainly that's what Jesus did. He revealed to us God's covenant purposes, right? Also, as priest, as priest, um, he came to be, uh, again, like the mediator, the intercessor of God's covenant people. All of these different things that the Son has done as prophet, priest, and king. Um, also, what about the, what about as king? Well, as king, that helps us to understand the nature of the covenant itself, that it is promising a kingdom, as we have stated, um, and that that kingdom is interesting, but that kingdom is an already not yet reality, right? Can you think of a, can you think of an aspect of the kingdom of God that is already, that is already realized, already here, already, uh, inaugurated, or it's already begun, Yes, sir. He is already reigning. In what way? I mean, he's in heaven, but... And if he... Do we have any access to him there? Because that sounds great for him. I mean, he's in heaven, you know, at the right hand of the Father, right? So he, so he made it. <laughs> what about us? As he commands us to pray, bringing our petitions before him, it's almost as if we're petitioning the king. Okay, so so the already aspect of that is that Christ is already reigning. Is that does that have anything else to do with us, or and how does that relate to us? Yes, ma'am. That's right. So His reign is not just a principle that's out there in space, right? But the reign of Christ, which has already begun, has already taken place in our heart. Right? He is ruling and reigning within us. Right? Um, that's an amazing concept if you think about it. Uh, okay, so what about a not yet aspect? Or anybody else have a already aspect of the kingdom? Yes, ma'am. Raise your, raise your hand high so I could prophesy. Go ahead. You know, testify. you gotta, you got to testify. I might miss. If you're down here, I'm not going to. The what now? Satan's defeat. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, because that already shows that he's crushed his enemies, right? Uh, what is that passage? I think it's in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. For this reason, the Son has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil, right? So he has already come to do away with our adversaries, right? So many aspects of the kingdom that are already, you know, um, it's an already, it's a spiritual reality in our hearts. Um, he has already ascended to the throne. He has already begun to put his enemies under his feet, right? All of these things. Uh, Jesus, as a matter of fact, when he came in his earthly life, he cast out demons, right? And he said, this is the kingdom of God upon you, <laughs> right? Which the people misunderstood because at that time, if you just follow the Gospels, it seems as if most people thought the kingdom of God is an external reality. And unless we see the Romans overthrown, the kingdom of God can't possibly be here. Jesus is saying, absolutely not. Because you have a greater enemy than the Romans. 
You have the spiritual hosts of wickedness, the principalities and powers. And for me to overthrow them is a clear indication that the kingdom is already here. That's remarkable, right? What else? Anybody else? Yes, sir. Just one other aspect in, in conjunction with what Michelle said is his lordship is he has defeated the dominion of sin in, in our lives. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Power of sin has been yeah, it says it right here. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 12 says, giving thanks to us, uh, gi- uh, no, no, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he rescued us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So there you go. There is a clear indication of present, already reality of the kingdom of God. Right, whereas dispensational theologians would say that no, the kingdom of God has not come. Uh, John MacArthur recently preached a sermon on eschatology where he kind of played a, a game and said something like, you know, some people say the kingdom is already here, and he says if you tell that to a Jew, he'll look around and he goes, they'll say it's here. Where? Don't see it. And so dispensationalists seem to agree with that Jewish interpretation of the kingdom of God. Um, that says it has to come externally in order for it to be here in any way. We disagree. We say, no, the kingdom of God is here spiritually, um, and, and, and obviously it was inaugurated in Christ. So, okay, um, why, don't we, um, why don't we fast forward because, oh man, we have so much to say about the sun. Oh, I thought you had a question. So, let's go from the Son to the third person of the Trinity, which is the Spirit. And what is the Spirit's role in the kingdom of, or or in the pactum salutis? What does the Spirit do, and how is he operative in redemption? How does the Spirit operate in the context of redemption? Um, He's the paraclete. He is the comforter, right? Uh, He... Which is interesting because, so what we're saying is this, when you see the activity of the Spirit of God, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, and especially as he relates to the ministry of Christ, what we're saying is this, that what you're seeing there is not simply some sort of haphazard work of the Holy Spirit, right? Where just he just takes advantage of a situation and makes it work out. <laughs> right? That is not what is happening there. What is happening there is that the Spirit is doing precisely the work that He agreed to do upon the sons entering into the world, let's say. What are some of the things that He covenanted to do? Now, that means that you accept the idea that He covenanted to do this. So let me just ask you a simpler question. What is some of the activity that you see the Spirit doing in conjunction with the Son? What's that? Guidance. Guidance for... Guidance for, for the Son? Oh, so, so the Spirit guiding us. Okay, so he agrees to guide God's people, right? And that certainly would fit in a bigger category, right? Which is how the Spirit is going to operate within the people of God, right? That's a good... Yeah. Yes, ma'am. You know, that's a really interesting one. So let's 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 turn there for a second. Go to um I don't know, we can go to Matthew, I guess, Matthew chapter four. Right? 
Matthew chapter 4, you see... Now, this is remarkable because what, what comes right before the temptation? The baptism. And... What's interesting is that, let's just read it, um, verse uh, verse 13, as I'm looking at the clock. Alas, the hourglass, she is the enemy. Okay, verse 13, then Jesus arrived in Galilee uh, at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, permit it, permit it at this time. That, that is so full of uh, meaning, by the way, that phrase, at this time. Why? Because it is the fullness of times, Galatians 4.4. 4. It is the end time. It is the last time. It is the final hour. It is the time of fulfillment, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. It is the time. It is a time of visitation, right? It is this long-awaited time. This is all, that's full of meaning. It says, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, uh, remember that, that the Son, as part of the covenant of redemption, comes to be our surety, which means he comes to be like the guarantee of the covenant. He's the guarantee. He's the one that will make the work of redemption guaranteed and, 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 and guaranteed to be accomplished for us and guaranteed to be applied to us. So in this surety work, right, the Spirit comes in the context of that. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What is going on there, I believe, is that you have a direct connection to Jesus being uh, because wh- where does that language come from? This is my beloved son. You know where it comes from? Look at your footnotes. Got footnotes? What is it saying? Because it sa- he says it there again. Anybody else have a different fo- footnote? Connecting us to a different verse anywhere? Psalm 2, two verse 7, right? This is And, and Psalm 2, verse 7, and obviously leading us back to Second Samuel chapter 7. I always forget that too. First Samuel, Second Samuel, so many Samuels. Anyway, so that sonship language is yet again reiterated and going back to another sonship language that we talked about already, which is what? Well, no, because that's going forward. Now we're, I'm saying back before Samuel. Who else was called God's son? After Adam. Oh, man, we need a timeline. <laughs> we need a timeline. Who is it? Israel, where? Exodus. Come on, <laughs> Kato. Come on, Kato. Exodus chapter 4, right? Exodus chapter 4, I think it's verse 20. 23. 23. Verse 23. Verse 23. There, Israel is called God's son. Now, God comes upon Israel in, in, in glory, right? He appears to them with a uh, with a cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, is a manifestation of the glory of God. This is a theophany appearance of God. What happens at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit comes in theophany. He manifests himself openly in the form of a dove and descends upon him. 
right? In the waters of baptism. What happened to Israel after they were delivered, after they went through the Red Sea and the Spirit of God came and the manifestation of the cloud of God, which, by the way, guys, when God manifests himself with a cloud, it is always in conjunction to the Spirit of God. There's all sorts of texts that connect the Spirit with the cloud of God, uh, which is his glory. Well, right after the Exodus, what does God do to Israel? Where does he send them? The wilderness to be what? Tempted to be tested, right? And what do we have here immediately after the the baptism of Jesus? It says this, verse 1 of chapter 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this is, in a sense, imaging or mirroring exactly what happened with Israel in the Exodus And many have pointed out that this is one of the ways that we understand Jesus as the the second Exodus leader, right? That he is leading a people through a greater Exodus out of bondage. And that's, I think that's exactly what's going on. And that's what the Spirit came to do. He came to empower the Son, to rest upon the Son, to empower the Son. Um, And even in his incarnation, the Spirit is working in conjunction with the Son. He's working in conjunction with the Son to bring Him into the world for His activity to create a new creation. That's what's going on. That's why Jesus came. What's the kingdom of God? It's a new creation. Second uh, uh, Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Old and new, all that language, that's new creation language going back to Isaiah. But also pointing forward to Revelation 21 and other places. Questions? Comments? Yeah? I see kind of like a hesitation, so I didn't know. I didn't want to... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And us being, you know, temples of God, and then the culmination of that in Christ's second return, and him yeah. truly, you know, walking among people and going with him. Yeah, as the Spirit of God is given to us, what is that called? Right now, it says He is given to us as a what? As a what? Down as a down payment or a pledge. The Greek word is erabon which is like a deposit, a down payment of a future installment. So that's exactly right, Brian. The Spirit also agrees with the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God. He's already deposited into our hearts. He's already, you know, with Christ, ruling and reigning in his people, filling his people, all of that, transforming the people into a kingdom of priests. But it will not fully come until the consummation, right? Um Let me just read this. From the outset of Jesus' earthly life, the Spirit is seen active and involved in bringing the surety, that's Christ, that's the guarantee of the covenant, to his messianic goal. Just as the Spirit was there assisting the Word, that is the Son, in pre-incarnate glory to create the cosmos, Genesis 1, he also assists the Word uh, uh, to enter the creation, The Gospels open with a declaration of the activity of the Spirit concerning the Son even prior to the activity of the Son. 
the spirit was dispatched to bring the son into the world through a sovereign act of superintendence and miraculous conception. Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was this, Matthew one eighteen. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. It's not just for Christmas. It's because at some point in time, see, the Spirit of God doesn't do anything that he does haphazardly, coincidentally, just because of happen chance? No. The Spirit of God does everything according to plan. Right? There's God is a God of what? Order. He does everything with meticulous sovereignty. So everything he did in the life of Jesus was because of a predetermined plan of God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh-huh. I love it where it's, it's total evident where Jesus himself says from that time Jesus began preaching saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. Great verse. Great verse, Mike. That's right. That's exactly right. So he brings the kingdom with his arrival, right? This is what they call inaugurated eschatology. In other words, it has begun, right? That's right. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Somebody read that for us. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, what's interesting is that that word counsel... If you do a study on that, it's the Greek word uh, boule. There you go, Greek students. Uh, right? The Greek word boule, counsel, just means plan. Isn't that great? So what's going on in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, is you see, right, we know this one, you see redemption being planned by the Father, executed by the Son, applied by the Spirit, according to the plan. Isn't that great? I mean, this is stuff that keeps me up at night for you guys. It's like, Trish, another round. (laughs) You can't shut it off, you know? Oh, man, see what I'm saying? But you see that the Spirit is there attending the Son all the way through His ministry. In His ministry, um, His baptism, His birth, I mean, His birth, His baptism, His temptation in the wilderness. Also, let me read to you a dynamite. You want to talk about, uh, uh, you want to talk about, you know, um, a, a major verse. I mean, this is nuclear strength for covenant theology. Hebrews 9, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprinkled for, the, for, uh, for those who have been defiled can uh, sanctify the cleansing of the flesh. What covenant is that referring to? Mosaic, the old covenant. That's when the sacrificial system was operative, right? How much more will the blood of Christ, watch this now, who through... The eternal spirit offer himself without blemish and cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
What does the Spirit do for Christ? He not only brings him into the world, empowers him in the world, assists him in his earthly ministry, attests to the Son's work on earth, because Jesus said, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, right? And they said, no, you cast out demons by the devil. And they were present in the presence of the Spirit delivering people from from demons. And the people, now think about this, you guys. We're not talking about, you know, uh, TBN. We're talking about a demoniac that the whole town knows. This person is demon-possessed. Don't go anywhere near them. Jesus comes and with a word, bam, delivers this guy from his demons. People sit back and go, Satan. And is it no wonder that right after that, Jesus says, all manner of sin will be forgiven except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you attribute the work of the Spirit to Satan, there is no hope for you. This is the deepest level of divine attestation to who Jesus is. If you are so depraved and so demented in your mind, so as to think that the Spirit is the devil, there's no hope. You see that? Now, he just assists him in everything, his ministry, his redemption, The Spirit of God is there, Romans chapter 1, verse, what is it, 4? In the resurrection, he was raised according to the Spirit, right? In his exaltation and in his outpouring. So the Spirit, as part of his work, he agrees to to, to be with the Son, to help the Son in his incarnation, in his ministry, in his resurrection, in his exaltation, and in agreeing to be sent by the Son upon His people, right? Upon His church. That's exactly right. And and, and what is that for? Why is He doing that? He's doing that in order to build His temple. Let me just remind you real quick as we, now we enter dangerous waters as the clock is ticking away so quickly here. Uh, Zechariah, remember we looked at that briefly, but remember what he will do, what this high priest is going to do, this branch, the branch will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. As the Spirit is being outpoured by the Son, the Son is pouring out His Spirit according to plan. In the, in, in the process, He is building His temple, which is what? Now, I think it is the church. And I think that's pretty conclusive for a, a lot of passages of Scripture, right? That we are to be a holy temple to the Lord. Um, oh, we, have to, we have to end if we don't, we, we won't. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming.